You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 40. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to Liberty Buzzard, the podcast for inquisitive minds. Today, we have a special guest co-host, author Mary DeMuth. She has written books uh, titled Not Marked, Thin Places, and the upcoming book, The Seven Deadly Friendships. Welcome to the show, Mary. Hey, it is so great to be here. I love you both, and I'm really excited about being here. So we wanted to talk about um, hashtag activism because uh, you are a, a, a big activist in the online space on Twitter and, and on blogging. Uh, but before we get into the specific topics, tell us a little bit about hashtag activism in general. What is it and why is it having such a big impact on society? Well, we've just seen some amazing developments over the past year or so with hashtag um I almost said evangelism, but that's probably the wrong word, activism. And uh, yeah, I mean, the Me Too movement has been amazing and really started with that little pound sign, that little hashtag, where people are finally given permission to to say the thing that had been secret their whole lives. And I have experienced that on certain levels. Like I, when I speak or I get a lot of emails from people that say things like, I've never shared this story before in my life. I'm sharing it with you. But with a hashtag, with hashtag activism, you just see people gaining their voices and telling their stories in kind of a conglomerate way. I hope that makes sense, conglomerate way. Yeah. So tell us, what is the story behind the Me Too hashtag? Yeah. So um, it was started actually a long time ago, uh, but then um, was it, who was it that picked it up? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember her name, but anyway, another famous actress picked it up and started talking about her Me Too story. And um, from that point on, people just went crazy with it and started sharing their own stories. And this was in the, this was after the Weinstein exposure that happened. Alyssa Milano. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, she skipped my mind. (laughs) Yeah. So, so Weinstein uh, was this predator who got to such a powerful position of influence that he basically did whatever he wanted for what two or three decades in Hollywood, and no one was willing to stand up to him until Alyssa Milano came out and shared her story. And then once she shared her story, was it, I don't know if it's dozens or hundreds of other women, definitely dozens of other actresses shared their similar stories. And uh, the result was that Weinstein lost everything. He lost his job, he lost his company, the company changed its name. And, uh, there's been actually ramifications, which I think is a big deal because Hollywood has been known for this kinds of bad behavior from its very inception. Like in the early 1900s, Hollywood had a reputation of where women went to disappear. Like it was very, it was seen as very unsafe place for women. And, um, and yet there was never any consequences. So how is it that there are finally consequences now in 2018, when there weren't consequences in 1918, or, um, you know, 1958? That's a good question. I I also would like to say, um, I've, I had forgotten to mention that it was Tarana Burke who started all of this uh, years before Alyssa picked up on the hashtag, and she has graciously acknowledged that Tarana was the one who started that um, but I think it has something to do with society's norms and um, 
you know, an earlier, stronger patriarchal culture in the early 1900s would prevent it. Um, and then just social norms for a long time. I think also the baby boomer generation was pretty much the last generation who had this kind of hush hush thing going on about family secrets and secrets of any kind. It's like, you just don't talk about those things. Now we're in more of a culture where people are sick of it and they're like, I don't want hush hush anymore. I want to tell my story and it's becoming more normative, but way back when, or even when I was growing up, uh, there was, you just didn't say that stuff. And the result of that, of keeping it silent, was that you'd have somebody who would prey on a community for decades sometimes. And it's not just a Hollywood thing. It's a everywhere thing. We see it in Washington, D.C. We see it in Silicon Valley. And we see it now in in churches, too. In fact, there's a Church 2 hashtag. What's what's the story of that? Yeah, so that one started... you know, uh, after the Me Too movement. And that is a a hard one to follow because you see that there is um, in these kind of structures where there, and I wouldn't say just men, but men and women who gain authority over other people, uh, there's more of a chance, especially in the Christian celebrity culture, there's more of a chance that if someone is well-known and they have a group of uh, yes men or yes women around them. I'm thinking now of the Willow Creek issue and uh, Bill Hybels. If if you've got that kind of dynamic, that power dynamic in place, church becomes a really easy place for predators. I've been connected with a group called netgrace.org. Uh, it's run by Billy Graham's grandson, Boz Chavijan, and he was a prosecutor of childhood sexual abuse. And what he found was when he would go into prosecution Execute these criminals, um, the side of the courtroom where the victim was was nearly empty except for family. And the side where the perpetrator, who happened to be a church member or a church leader, was full of supporters. And he was just fed up with it. And he's like, this is wrong. We need to educate the church. And what a better, you know, what a better place to pray on it. I'm talking specifically of childhood sexual abuse, but what a great place to go. People are trusting, um, you know, for a long time, churches didn't have checks and balances to try to check people out. They didn't do background checks. What a perfect place to go in. And we see it also within the Catholic abuse uh, scandal that has spanned decades and decades is, you know, you have these hierarchical structures with no accountability or a very strong um, desire to protect the institution. And that makes it very possible for this kind of abuse. That's a super long answer, but that's kind of what where I'm coming from in that area. So Mary, I think that's that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that you said that is the most interesting to me is the power aspect of this. So as, uh, you know, as, as a prior law enforcement officer, we studied this quite a bit in conjunction with uh, victim services counselors, social workers. So when working with this type of cases, you know, we know how to interact um, with the victims. And one of the biggest things about this is um, whether it's a domestic abuse situation, whether it's a sexual assault situation, more often than not, these situations uh, are an aspect of power. And so you have these uh, largely men uh, in positions of power. It's not exclusive to men, but it's largely men in positions of power. Ironically, today is uh, Bill Cosby's, the day that we are recording this for you uh, listeners out there, is Bill Cosby's sen- sentencing day. And he's a large part of the Me Too movement as well. Um, maybe maybe one of the first, because I think he preceded Harvey Weinstein. But um, so you have these men in positions of power uh, who had little accountability. And that's something you also mentioned in there is the accountability aspect. So you have 
no accountability or little accountability, and then you have pos- people in positions of power, uh, whether that's in the church or in the acting community or whatever community. Uh, oh, and I'll mention this because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big uh, um, active member, as along with my children, with the Boy Scouts of America, that it was a big problem with the Boy Scouts too, with uh, with children predators. If you have lack of accountability, you have places where people can go and you know uh, perform these terrible misdeeds on these other people and um, and, and shame them into silence, guilt them into silence, uh, what have you. So, so yeah, it's it's largely about power and power in the absence of accountability, and those are the breeding grounds of of these terrible situations. And um, I think the importance of the Me Too movement and one of the incredible positive aspects of social media is the fact that you have an area where all of a sudden you have these uh, survivors that can come together and realize that they're not alone in the world and they can overcome their guilt. They can um, overcome their shame and regain their own position of power because uh, there is no power like group power. And all of a sudden they're holding these people, these perpetrators of these terrible crimes accountable where they weren't accountable before and it's in the internet in the internet age is a really fantastic new age in that way where you know humble people normal quote unquote normal people can hold these uh, other individuals who have power who have these positions of power accountable and i think that's hugely important um and Unfortunately, and I don't know if we're going to discuss that right now. I don't, I don't know if we want to get into it. There is the dark side of that where uh, it can go a little bit too far. Um, and I've, I've seen as a law enforcement officer the, the the downside of that too, which is unfortunate. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't want to reflect on that too much. I do want to say that as as a movement of holding previously unaccountable people accountable, it's it's incredible to see. Yeah. And I think you're hinting at, you know, just uh, false accusations. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, the power that's out there on the internets and social media is both amazing and has a dark side as well. I mean, you could you could change someone's life for the worse by a false accusation. So I also want to just affirm that that is a problem. It's not a huge problem, but it is a problem. And um, as an advocate, I would also stand against that. One of the interesting things about this power shift is how long-term this power shift has been shifting. A lot of people think that it's because of the internet that power is shifting from men to women, but it actually goes back way farther than that. So to understand kind of why this shift is here to stay, uh, we have to understand why have men been more powerful than women historically? And in most cultures, especially farming cultures, uh, agricultural cultures, the primary source of power is in the sense of like being able to bring in food. The whole society revolved around the growing of food and keeping people from starving to death. And men were categorically better at pushing plows than women, right? It's like, it is an activity that requires upper body strength. And while a woman can push a plow, she'll never be able to push a plow as well as a man can, which means that when it comes to waging war and when it comes to, you know, whether the, you're using plows or you beat the, your plows into swords, men are just better at both of those things. But now we've moved where we don't 
push plows anymore. And we haven't pushed plows for a hundred years. We've had machines that do that for us. And the last hundred years have been a constant um, march of women getting more power unto themselves because men no longer have that monopoly on the food production process. And uh, when it comes to society, our society doesn't revolve around growing food anymore. You know, a tiny fraction of the society grows food and it's, you know, a part of society that the rest of society doesn't interact with very much. And nowadays, the primary skills that make you successful is being well-educated and being able to sit still for long periods of time, physically inactive, right? At a computer, right? Those are the people who make the most money and women actually have an advantage in that. You know, little girls in school are able to sit still more easily than little boys in school. And this is a fascinating shift. This isn't like some fad or some phenomenon. Me Too is the um, is a sign of a tide that is rising. And um, you don't see trends like that very often. And I think this one is a really good one. The rise of automation, the rise of robots is really beneficial to women who, because they physically aren't as strong, that doesn't have as much effect on their actual power in society as it has for the last thousands of years. Mary, your thoughts. Yeah. So I will say um, I'm a triathlete. So (laughs) (laughs) and you're probably stronger than me, to be fair. It is a Venn diagram of strength. (laughs) So, yes, but I, I, I do agree in one sense. It's just to throw a little bit of a hammer in there is that one of the things I think that's interesting is during an agrarian society, um, I think that men and women were more partners in work than we are now. Um, sadly, it's it's interesting. I mean, goodly, I guess that sounds good for the 1800s. Goodly. Uh, but, you know, there was like this partnership on the farm. And so you had this interaction with uh, men and women working together toward a common goal. And it seems like industrialization has caused kind of more of a maybe a battle of the sexes in the sense of of, you know, differing roles or whatnot. But I think it's kind of fascinating to think about that in that agrarian society, while there may may definitely have been gendered roles, uh, there was more of a common work ethic toward a a greater good of the family. And now you've got people, you know, working mom, working dad, going out into the world, doing two different things. And they do still have that common goal, but they're not together doing it unless you're talking about people, you know, working from home, like all of us here in this room, or at least two of us in this room. Um, So that's my little wrench. But I also will say, yes, I would agree, Thomas, that, um, Women having more of an economic role in the world, uh, although still less paid, does help the the idea that um, that there is an equal amount of value in the work of a woman. So I would say that, yes, I would agree with that. It, and when it comes to trends, uh, colleges are graduating far more women than they are graduating men. I think it's 60 percent plus female graduation rate and about a 40% male graduation rate. And so I feel like, you know, over the next couple of generations, as those better educated women get into more positions of power, this trend will continue. So there are definitely counterfactuals and men definitely are paid more, especially when it comes to equity. I saw some new stats came out just last week about how equity um, in like Silicon Valley companies for every dollar of ma- of equity that a man has, women only have like 39 cents of equity. Like it's a way bigger 
um, disparity. And I was like, I totally believe that because men fight really hard uh, for equity. And uh, there's lots of reasons. I'm not going to, that's not the topic of, of this, uh, this conversation. Uh, I do want to get back to the sexual abuse and the me too, um, because it's not just affected the church. It's also affected Christian publishing. You're an author of, of a lot of books. You've been in the Christian publishing uh, space for a long time. You're well respected there. Can you confirm that the you know the abuse has been prevalent in Christian publishing? Yeah, I absolutely can confirm. I've experienced it myself, which is something I haven't been very vocal about. But um, yeah, it's happening. And I was talking to someone yesterday, and I was asking him, you know, what his perspective was. And he's in the science fiction community, and he said, "Well, it's interesting because we're about ten years behind. The science fiction community has made standards available for conferences, saying this is our code of ethics, and Christian conferences are now finally." coming around and having these <clears throat> codes of conduct. So, uh, yeah, it's happening. It has happened. It has devastated hundreds of lives. And I know of many personally who whose um, careers in publishing have been uh, sidelined either by the person that preyed upon them or by them themselves who are just like so weary after all the predation that happened. Um, and I think that's just, it's, it's terrible. And I think part of the problem is in those structures, like in a church or in Christian publishing, I know my personal assumption was I'm safe here. And then when you find out you're not safe there, it takes you back. Like you just, I would let my guard down in that situation, whereas I might not let my guard down in another situation. And when you let your guard down, um, then you're more open to being exploited. And there's also the power dynamic, and go, again, going, which is the topic of the show, by the way. We talk a lot about power and how it affects uh, society and how it affects individuals. And normally we talk about it in a political context, but Christian publishing or really any sort of publishing field is a great little microcosm of this dynamic and the corrupting force of power because you have at a conference – people like editors who have power, right? They decide whether you get published or not. And at least in the olden days, you had authors who did not have power. They came as humble supplicants to the publishers and to a lesser degree to literary agents, you know, begging them, please publish my book. And again, with technology, that power dynamic has shifted somewhat where authors now have another path to being published other than going through a publisher. You know, you no longer have to be independently wealthy to publish the book yourself. You can, you know, independently publish through CreateSpace or through Amazon KDP Direct. You can go with many other companies that will, for a small fee, help you get published. And I think that that has helped uh, this dynamic and, and publishing Although I think there's also a social cultural impact to this that I think you understand better. Why is it that it took until now for, because some of these predators in Christian publishing go back decades. You know, why was it until now that they finally got um, outed, so to speak? Well, I think, of course, all those hashtags helped. But um, I also think that... Uh, we didn't find each other until recently. And I think that's kind of the dynamic of a lot of abuse victims. They think they're the only one. And then in this dynamic in Christian writers conferences, there's also the, the desire to protect your marriage and to say, well, I don't really want to get this out there because this was painful in my marriage or this affected me or my marriage. And so 
Christian women who are writers are not as willing to come forward with their stories. But this one in particular came about because conference directors started hearing similar names said over and over because people started to come out and say, this is not right. And those directors decided that they were not going to be havens for predators anymore. And they started disinviting and sharing names, which I think is brilliant. And then that gave birth to the PW, the Publishers Weekly article. And um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the Publishers Weekly article couldn't go into all the long, long details of all the different amounts of people who are preyed on because no one was willing or very few people were willing to give their names. But um, we're seeing a lot more people come out as a result of that article. How do we help people, especially victims, be more willing to share their stories on the record? Because I feel like this is critical for creating environments where predators don't feel safe, right? Like the whole thing about me too, that I've kind of enjoyed is these, you know, wolves are suddenly afraid, right? The wolves are whimpering for the first time uh, in uh, some cases. And what's making them whimper is once people come out, it gives other people courage to come out. But, um, you know, like the CBS, uh, like one of the top executives of CBS, like lasted for a year, doing the same things Weinstein was doing in the same industry, and yet people were afraid to come out until somebody else came out. How do we help uh, victims have the courage to share their stories as a society? Like, how can our listeners be a part of the solution here? I would say something super simple as if someone does name their name and name the name of the predator to just commend them publicly and say, thank you so much for being brave, because they will also receive so much backlash. And we all know about the fact that I could have a hundred positive reviews and one negative, and I'm going to focus on the negative. So it's really important that as a society, we say, Hey, you know, that was really brave. Thanks for speaking up and, um, to support that person. So many years, uh, you know, personally for me, I felt like, um, I felt like I would be, you know, injured and not physically injured, but my career would be injured if I spoke up. And uh, that's, I think, the dynamic that's happening around the world is that if this is done in a job situation, um, there's the economic thing that we're not really talking about here. Like this could really like sack my, you know, the fear would be there. This could sack someone's career by speaking up because these men in power have the ability to, you know, harm a career. And for me, it was like, well, this person does actually hold my career in his hands. And so there was a whole bunch of fear associated with that. So Mary, I have a question for you. Something that I've been thinking about um, in in regards to the Me Too movement and social media and um, what I call public justice. Um, and of course, you know, we have this whole concept of justice in our society. You know, you, uh, you reap what you sow, um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of an eye for an eye. You do something bad and you're going to pay for it in some way. And um, so, so with my previous experience in law enforcement, um, you know, I'm a firm believer in the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. And the traditional criminal justice process sometimes conflicts with the Me Too movement. Um, you know, a lot of times the criminal justice process is very secretive because the prosecutors, the the everybody wants to have their ducks in the road. They don't want to prejudice the case, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a very high bar 
to um, to convict someone criminally, especially in, in what a lot of ways is a he said uh, he said she said situation, um, and it's very difficult to get physical evidence off those cases, so they're very difficult to prove. So I just wanted to get your thoughts as someone who is an activist and, and, and a survivor on the ramifications of what you think um, on justice and the public shame versus the criminal uh, prosecution aspect of the Me Too movement? It's a great question and one I definitely wrestle with. I know that my friend Boz has written a post about that, and I can send it to you guys to put in your show notes if you like, about the, dif- the difference between um, innocent until, until proven guilty versus protecting the innocent. And I think that's where we're, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Like if we have a plethora of stories about one person, then whether they are prosecuted by a court of law or not, it is like society's onus to remove through public, you know, karma or whatever, uh, remove that person from those positions of power um, whether that be through a civic action or a court action or just through media, which has been happening throughout all of history that had media. Media's job is to do these undercover kinds of investigations and to expose these kinds of things. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there's also a huge tension between, you know, how many victims of Cosby there were. Uh, if we believe all the stories, um, versus he's being prosecuted for, I think, one instance right now and will be sentenced today. Um, will that mean that justice is not served if he is, you know, goes to prison now uh, because he was only convicted on one thing when there's all these other victims? Well, in a sense, yes, it is served. And in a sense, it's not. So um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I do think that there is a tension that we have to be very careful about. We don't want vigilante justice. We don't want mob justice. But I do think that there is precedent for the fact that if there is a sheer number of people who confirm the first person's story, then we have to take notice of that. So I completely agree with you. And yeah, it, it, I mean, I, I put it out there and it's a difficult question to answer. Um, and yeah. I think we as a society are really struggling with that, with that right now. And in Cosby's case, you know, my what I tell people is where there's smoke, there's fire. And, you know, where you have one story come out, um, you know, from decades ago, but then you have another, you have another, you have another. I think, I think the avalanche, it, it was hard to stop the avalanche on that one. Um, and, you know, when you have so many... Um, duplicate accounts uh, with the same details. I, th- I mean, I think that one was actually, in my, in my opinion, as far as easy gets, that, that's about as easy it gets. Same with Weinstein. I mean, you have you, he just did the same things over and over and over again. So those are the easy ones. Um, I guess the really tough ones are where, I mean, you have you have the Kavanaugh right now. We It's, it's you know, it's the elephant in the room. We can't not talk about it. Um, which is, you know, we, we who want to be intellectually honest, we who want the best people to be in positions of power for our government, you know, I think we're stuck in a rock and a hard place right now because is is this um, is this in fact a survivor coming forth with a tale or excuse me a tale that's the poor phraseology is this a survivor coming forth um, with uh, with with her facts and doing the right thing or is it political opportunism? It's very, very, very difficult for anybody to decipher because it's right now it's pure he said, she said. So I think that's where um, I think that's where it can kind of get scary 
in some aspects because now you know if if you know she is in fact not telling the truth and i have interviewed as a as a police officer um uh, outcry outcries that were later disproven or recanted and it ruined it ruined the person that who they accused it ruined their lives ruined their lives um and that that that's that's the difficult situation here and yeah i mean i agree with you it's 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 a tough one to answer and i don't think the the right answer is you know taking the voice away i think that's an incredible aspect of the movement and i think it's an important aspect of the movement but uh yeah i just we, we i guess the answer is we just have to be careful and not uh not judge too soon where the evidence doesn't warrant it i got that's just the best answer i've got I think a good example of, to answer your question about justice, of doing it well is Judge Rosemary Aquilina on the Nasser trial. I don't know if y'all followed that, but uh, Nasser was this doctor and he preyed on these gymnasts uh, in very uh, manipulative ways. And, every, you know, he would get challenged. He's like, oh, it's a medical procedure. It's a legitimate medical procedure. And he would talk all this medical jargon and, you know, police officers didn't know any better and so they would believe him but finally rachel don uh, hollander uh, really pushed back and broke it open and then you know a dozen gymnasts came forward and then multiple gymnasts came forward and uh, one of the things that rosemary uh, judge rosemary aquilina did was that um even though nasser pleaded guilty and what's sad is that he didn't actually plead guilty to any of the charges related to the um, his abuse, I don't think. I think what he was actually convicted on was a um, child pornography um, uh, charge, which was related, but uh, not the same. But uh, Judge Aquilina had uh, allowed every gymnast who wanted to come forward share their story and required Nasser to sit there and listen to it. <laughs> and I um, watched some of that testimony and also read some of Nasser's whining. Like he wrote a letter to the judge being like, oh, this is so difficult for me to have to hear all of this. And the judge had no mercy on him. She was like, it's difficult for you to hear. You know, like, imagine what it was like for all of these victims. And uh, I felt like ju justice really happened in that courtroom and that he got a punishment that um, was better and more satisfying than just him sitting in jail for the rest of his life. The fact that he had to experience that psychological quote unquote trauma of hearing the stories of these women who now had voices and now had their courage and, you know, were willing to speak up, I think was really powerful and really good for the country to watch. It's really interesting. I think that's pretty typical uh, criminal behavior. You know, I say criminal, guilty behavior. When someone is forced to look in the mirror of their own guilt you know, the typical human being's response is, you know, protect myself, rationalize. Oh, yeah, I did these terrible things, but here's why, you know. And then all of a sudden they start coming out with their tales of abuse, which a lot of abusers were abused. Um, and all these rationalizations or, you know, reasons why they, they shouldn't have to endure uh, what they're being forced to endure. So, yeah, Nasser's response uh, is pretty typical based on my experience of people when the evidence is overwhelming and they see what's coming down the pipe that's 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 pretty typical of what uh what they do well and we have to look at things like um you know sociopathic and psychopathic people and you know being in law enforcement i'm sure you've seen your share but that's you know one of the reasons why i wrote the seven deadly friendships i wanted to be able to give people some lists and tools to figure out why why am I attracted to people like this, if that's the case? And what are some aspects of it? And Nasser really, really <laughs> was definitely a predator. And that was one of the, the ones I tackle in the book. And 
he had that sociopathic detachment from in that narcissistic uh, view of himself that um, this is all about me, poor me. I am the victim of these girls telling these stories when in fact the truth was he was the victimizer. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your book uh, and, and how, cause my wife, I haven't read your book, but my wife like devoured it in a day. <laughs> I brought it home and uh, she just couldn't put it down, uh, which is high praise. Uh, cause my wife, Margaret's very choosy about the books uh, that she reads and especially the books that she like finishes. She's, she's got a very high standard. And so tell us about how this book puts tools in the hands of people, both uh, specifically in preventing them from being victimized moving forward. Yeah. And so what I was saying earlier was I tended to be, I kept, I kept tending to attract uh, what I had in childhood, which was being raised by narcissistic people, predatory people, and also as a sexual abuse victim at five of obvious predators. And uh, sadly, I had this story that I couldn't complete. So I, the story was, I want someone who's a narcissistic predator to love me so that I can prove that I'm lovable. And um, the sad thing is narcissistic predators cannot love. <laughs> they don't have that ability. And so I was just constantly chasing after folks like that. And so I realized that's why I was pursuing unhealthy friendships. Um, and that was the impetus of writing this book was I, I wanted to, I wish I would have had something that helped me to see what they were or to unmask them. And then I wanted to learn, well, what do you do in the aftermath of that? And I've, I've gone through some of these friendships and I've, I'm going through one right now and it's so painful and we don't talk about it. We talk about divorce recovery. We don't talk about friendship breakup recovery. And so this book is my answer to all those, that stew of ideas that I just threw out there, but of broken friendships, difficult friendships, uh, people who are difficult, when to find safe people and how to move through that so that you're healthy and you don't keep attracting those same kinds of folks. I think that's so good. I remember uh, when I was in college, I was uh, leading a small group and my small group leader and I, a uh, co-leader, were having lots of relational difficulties. And we actually had we had to go to relationship counseling <laughs> because we were <laughs> leading this very big small group and the small group needed to exist. And so the people who were discipling us were like counseling us uh, through this relationship and like how to have a healthy relationship and how to deal with conflict. And I will say that going through that difficult time in college was very helpful now that I'm married because some of those lessons that I learned, you know, in hard ways, then I still have learned. It's not like I've unlearned those lessons and relationships are important. And Americans have gotten worse at relationships over the, one of the trends is that Americans have fewer close friends now than we did 50 years ago. The trend is towards fewer friends. And, um, I think that's a really sad statistic and something that I think your book is really helpful because, well, I haven't read it. I have glanced through it. And one of the things I like is that you don't just talk about others. You also have a kind of a reflecting back on yourself. It's like, do I show any of these tendencies of being a toxic friend myself? Because, you know, sometimes we attract what we are and by work in. And, and I want to say, I, I remember reading The Sociopath Next Door and it like freaked me out. Sociopaths everywhere. And it's like, there are these wolves and they're terrible. And the next book that I read was the A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, which was the perfect book to read after that, because that book has a sociopath as a character. Edmund is a sociopath, or he acts in sociopathic ways towards Lucy. He's cruel and vindictive, and 
he comes into an encounter with Aslan and he becomes a different character and becomes a different person for the rest of the story. And that kind of transformation is real and it is possible. Like just because you show some of these tendencies doesn't mean that that has to be who you are in the future. Now, if you're a predator, that doesn't mean I think that you should be given power uh, necessarily, but that doesn't mean that you can't still be redeemed and you can't still um, you know, be a, come a better person than yourself. So don't let this label become your, you know, if you're a narcissist, you can become less narcissistic, right? I think we all have some narcissistic tendencies, some more than others. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn to be more selfish, self, selfless. And I think that that's what, uh, God does in our hearts. It, it, he, he brings that change. And, uh, so I, I want to end this as much, you know, me too is kind of a dark subject, <laughs> but, uh, I think that in general, the trends are going in the right direction right women are getting more power every decade than they had the decade before they're finding their voices more than they did before and i think predators are more afraid uh, than they have been in a really long time and i think that those are good trends and yeah it's a difficult process and we're going through this weird phase right now where people are guilty by accusation uh, which i think that as women get more co- courage to share their stories it will actually go away moving forward where it'll be less novel for people to be accused and we'll have a more rational way of, of handling it. at least that's what i hope because it is a little scary that any political figure can be taken down by accusations whether they're proved or not uh you know the the impact of that is scary right like once people realize oh all i have to do is find a few people to make an accusation i can get this political person out of the way um but then you don't want to go so far where political people are able to get away with bad behavior uh which definitely happens so it's complicated and it's messy and i wish there was some like silver bullet (laughs) maybe every if everyone read your book mary seven deadly friendships (laughs) it would help quite a bit uh make people less vulnerable at the very least well, and, and we have to remember, I, I was in South Africa a couple of years ago, and this is something that has really stuck with me. Uh, you know, apartheid was a terrible government and did awful things and uh, exploited and I mean, just all the atrocities. But I was speaking with my friend who lived there and she said the new government, and um, I think it's been shifted again since since I talked to her, but so the new government is just as brutal. So the ones who had been victimized now were in power and they were being brutal and so we have to remember the lesson of south africa that that um absolute power unchecked is still absolute power unchecked so whether women get a voice you know or not we have to be we have to be cautious we don't need to let that go to our heads and like you said more measured um legal uh or um, journalistic ways of going about things are are more effective in the long run than just a rash accusation. Plus, we have to remember that Jesus was um, rashly accused as well and was proven innocent. So we've, it just has been throughout history. Mary, I think that's so profound what you said. Um, it's it's you're absolutely right. I mean. Unchecked power, one way or the other, uh, is 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 pretty poor. Um, and the minute you said that, the first thing I thought of was uh, I'm not sure if either of you um, or anybody in the audience has kept track with what happened at the small uh, college campus of Evergreen State up in Washington State a couple of years ago, where you essentially had a small group of students um, who traditionally, I believe, would be labeled social outcasts. Um, however, in the very, very uh, liberal, tolerant uh, environment of Evergreen State, uh, we're, 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 given, we're, we're given social freedoms 
such that they had never seen before to the point where they essentially took over the school and formed a power base unto itself. And it's a, if you read about it, it's a really interesting social experiment. What happens when previous victims are given power and they feel um, they feel authorized. What's the word I'm looking for? Justified. They feel like they have justified. They feel like they have a mandate to 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 uh, create uh, their own form of justice. So, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a scary dynamic. It really is, um, and it's something to be wary of. But at the same time, I don't think it should stop us uh, from celebrating what has become um, the comeuppance of people who previously were unchecked. Yeah, it's it's hard when there's a group of people who don't have enough power right now, and the trend is to give them more power to say. While we want to give them more power, we don't want to give them unlimited power. Like that's not <laughs> yeah. a popular position, but it is the liberty buzzard position that power is a corrupting force and that power should be kept in balance, right? The three branches of the government should be kept in balance. Uh, people should keep the government in balance and men and women, ideally, at least from my position, should have a balance of power. When men are more powerful than women, it causes problems. And when women are more powerful than men, that causes problems. And, and we're not really here to talk about the difference between feminism and egalitarianism, uh, which is another fascinating discussion. Maybe we'll have you back on Mary for your thoughts on that. Cause I think that that would be uh, another popular topic, but uh, yeah, I, I guess the um, ideal that we're striving for is, is balance in power moving uh, forward. And uh, Mary, we're sadly out of time, but you, uh, where can people find out more about you and more about your book? Yeah, so they can find me at marydemuth.com and the book is the number seven deadlyfriendships.com and they can actually take a quiz on that uh, on that link, sevendeadlyfriendships.com and find out who their predatory friend is or who their um, toxic friendship is. All right, and we will have a link uh, to that quiz in the show notes. Just scroll down in your app uh, and you will find a link to the sevendeadlyfriendships.com. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining us on Liberty Buzzard. Hey, it has been great. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstead CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com.